Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of the business win at the game of business and marketing so excited about today's topic so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community market and audience please take a moment visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com you will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator, and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. You're going to be especially pleased by today's topic, which is all about how small business owners can beat the IRS. Oh, I love that title. And we'd love to get a couple people on every year as much as possible who can share with us insights on taxation, tax planning, and tax strategies for entrepreneurs and business creators. We have somebody with us today who literally has a book about this and assured me in the green room that he can just keep going and going and going and going. So I'm going to advise you right now. Uh, While I introduce him, if you haven't done so already, get yourself a pad of paper and two pens. The reason I say two pens is it's funny how just when you're in the middle of an aha moment, especially in a fast-paced interview like we're going to have, one of the pens dies, or if you have a mischievous cat like I do, they'll jump up, grab it, and run off with it before you even know what happened. That has been my experience so many times. Today's guest, Charles Reed, spelled R-E-A-D. He's a certified public accountant, also known as a CPA, a U.S. tax court practitioner, which has its own little acronym, USTCP. He's a member of the Internal Revenue Service Advisory Council, IRSAC, and the founder of a company called Get Payroll, which you can find at getpayroll.com. Charles Reed's companies have provided full-service payroll services, payroll tax services, and other payroll-related services since, man, I was in junior high, 1991. (laughs) Charles is an accomplished senior executive and entrepreneur with more than 50 years of financial leadership experience and a broad range of industries and author of four books, the most recent one being The Payroll Book, A Guide for Small Businesses, and startups. Charles Reed, come on in. The weather's fine. Adam, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you today? We, uh, I'm sitting out here in uh, Las Vegas. I'm out on the balcony. Uh, some folks may hear a little bit of ambient noise, but what we know about the Business Creators Radio Show is we're not so worried about being in soundproof studios with 32 trillion octave mixer boards, bifurcating sound and things like that we just get good mic we just get good microphones get comfy get something to drink and have some fun our listeners appreciate the fact that our conversations tend to take the form of private masterminds they get to sit in on so i know that we're going to be sharing some great stuff today before we do so let's get to know charles reed the man just a little more i read off your official bio lots of alphabet soup there it's making me thinking it's going to be lunchtime after this so (laughs) (laughs) so uh, so tell us a little bit more about your journey uh and what's brought you to where you are serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience? Sure. Uh, I'm a Midwestern boy. I grew up in Iowa. Uh, Out of high school, I joined the United States Marine Corps, served four years, including two years overseas. 
Uh, while in service, I met and married my wife. She had five children when I married her. I, I claim insanity. Uh, we, were married, <laughs> we were married for 45 years till she passed here a few years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, I did my undergraduate and graduate work at the University of North Texas uh, in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas. Went to work for um, Texas Instruments after that. Worked for a number of large and small businesses. Uh, realized I was never going to run a major corporation because I didn't have the political skills. I'm unwilling to stab people in the back and toss them <laughs> off the ladder. So I started my own company so I could run a business. And I've been doing it for 30 years and having a great time. Have zero interest in retiring. I'm still here. I'm at my desk every day. And my clients call me and we talk and it's, it's a good time. Well, uh, and you seem to be a very, seem to be somewhat of a data-driven individual. Some people, when I share that question, start with, "Well, I uh, I uh, had a tricycle when I was three, and I was wheeling down the street, and I met Marvin, and uh, he had a little lemonade stand, and next thing you know, I was an entrepreneur." Now, it's funny you uh, you know, can't seem to find yourself thriving in corporate because you'll throw people off the bridge. Um, I'm that person who will say, look at that bridge thrower to hell with him. I'm not playing his stupid political game. So between the two of us, we got him bracketed. You got it. And we and we uh, formed two thirds of the trifecta of the unemployable. And many of our <laughs> listeners are that third trifecta. Now we do have some corporate warrior types and there's some avid listeners and they've told us they gain a lot from listening to our episodes. We have side hustlers. We have people who run their businesses. We have people who invest in businesses. We have a lot of things where it's kind of a generalist show, but what everybody who listens to this pretty much has in common is their taxation strategies go a little bit beyond filling out a 1040 easy. So Let's get deep here. Uh, on everybody's minds right now is some of this COVID stuff. So uh, I know you have a series of topics you want to cover with us. So uh, we may do them in order. We may mix them up a little bit. We may take to some different journeys. But let's start with something that I know is on a lot of people's minds. Uh, COVID tax provisions. To me, it's confusing because you hear about these bills being passed, you hear about money, you hear about money running out, you hear about stimulus packages coming and going, uh, you hear about uh, partisan bickering in Congress, uh, where the, in some cases they actually agree, but neither one will give the other side credit, so they just don't do it. At least that's what it sounds like to me. God, I don't know. You tell us. Well, am I tend to be with you? I don't know. I mean, when the PPP came out, the payroll protection program, uh, it was changed within a few days and 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 a few days. It just, it was changed like 40 times. And it's still not, the, the, how you get uh, relieved of the obligation still isn't finalized. They have multiple forms and they're continuing to change them. So uh, then you have the F FFRCA uh, and that is a still a nightmare. And it will probably be two years before the regulations are final on it. You had the stimulus package that was supposed to go out to everybody. It went out to some people. It didn't go out to everybody. Uh, now they're talking about another stimulus. And we have no idea what they're going to include in that. Are they going to be just for individuals? Is it going to be for businesses again? Is it going to be for small business? Are big guys going to get in on it? Nobody knows what's going to happen. But what you have to think about is solving the ones you have. 
The PPP, if you've got a PPP loan, you need to be prepared to get it forgiven, if at all possible. There's multiple forms out there that the, they've put out. Uh, talk to your banker, whoever provided you with the PPP, pick the best form, get all the data put together. You should start doing it pretty soon. It will, they will have to be submitted here relatively soon. Uh, the deadline has not been set yet, so I don't know when it'll be. And they're talking about maybe just saying everything under 50,000, just forget about it and don't even have to do anything. But start preparing, look at the forms, see what you need in terms of expenses and proof, uh, payroll records, other receipts, other records of payments, and put it together and be able to give it to your banker to get your PPP forgiveness, if at all possible. The FFCRA is still running. It'll run to the end of the year uh, with the increase in COVID cases. There's more people being unemployed. There's more lockdowns again. There's more people being forced to stay home. So you're gonna have more unemployment, some of which you can get reimbursed for if you're paying these people under the FFRCA. Uh, so uh, be prepared for that. That'll go through the end of the year. The tax deferral of, of FICA deferment taxes that Trump uh, put in here uh, a couple of months ago runs till the end of the year. Very, very few people have taken that because if you allow it and you allow your people to defer those taxes and you don't make those tax deposits, they're supposed to make that payment back to you in the first five months of next year. If they've left your employee, you have no way to except to sue them to get that money back because you're going to have to pay it in as the employer. So it was a, a very poorly conceived program uh, in that most employers just, it was a small amount uh, and it just wasn't enticing to employers to put it into place. It was a good idea, but it was a little small, a little late and not very desirable to the people who made the decision, which was the employers. The only people that really did it big time was the government. Wow. Okay. So you know what? To hell with it. I'm just not going to pay anything. Let them let them tell me what I own because I can't figure it out either. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, <laughs> but I but I, but I imagine some folks may be almost in that boat of, well, what what the heck am I supposed to do with all this? There's so much data, so much information. I heard a story from a friend of mine a couple months ago about uh, how he knew somebody who was applying for one of these loans uh from or these you know these loans are available or these packages are available to small business owners and they could not believe that there were strings attached i'm thinking uh this is the federal government there are always <laughs> strings attached they very much want to know what you're going to do with the money it's funny how that works especially if they're speaking about making you a loan that they might never even ask you to repay yeah, yeah, damn right they're going to tell you what to do with the money. Do you want it or not? <laughs> and that's basically, Adam, you're exactly right. The, the Congress always sets requirements, restrictions, uh, gotchas. Everywhere the government goes is a minefield. This is no different. It was a stimulus package except for, but in case of, and if you do, and but not for you, and, 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 and absolutely right. Yeah. 
So uh, I can understand why some folks just didn't even bother with it. And I also know that there are those who uh, tried to file for it and then the money had run out or uh, they ran into uh, some issues with the banks that were authorized to do it and all kinds of other things. So uh, I'm I'm going to give one piece of advice on that. Yeah. Anytime you deal with a bank, they have their own restrictions that they will never tell you. Yeah, you can go to them and say, I need a loan. And it may be a slam dunk loan, but they're at their loan limit. They won't tell you they're at their loan limit. They'll just say, no. You go across the street and the guy will go, God, yeah, we'll be glad to loan you the money. It's wonderful. There's no risk for us at all. And we have loan availability. Well, the same thing with the PPP. Some people were set up for it. Some people weren't. Some people got overwhelmed. Some people didn't, uh, depending on the bank and the size of the bank, their funds from the SBA may have been limited. Uh, they may have reached limits, legal limits internally from regulators, and they'll never tell you if they have a problem or a restriction or a limit. They'll just say no. They lie to you by omission. Yeah. You know, you know what you know. What's interesting is uh, we um, we've had episodes on Business Creators Radio. We've got into this stuff about getting traditional loans and things like that, and we discover that there are so many criteria that the banks just won't tell you. I remember the last time I tried to get a small business loan for my corporation was seven years ago, and they just I mean it seemed it seemed like the guy I was working with at the bank was getting some sort of uh, credit or some sort of commission for handling paperwork with the idea that it was never actually going to be approved. To lay a little (laughs) bit of a foundation for you, because I don't think it's gotten any better or worse, is um, I had just paid off a a debt consolidation loan I took out at the height of the Great Recession. It was 2013, I paid that sucker off early. So I'm thinking, yeah, okay. So in the meantime, I ticked up a few of the business credit cards a little bit. So let's do another one. Uh, well, in 2008, uh, they mean they were so eager to loan money to me that I had bankers showing up at my home office, you know, home office, yep. uninvited with paperwork already pre-filled out. All I needed to do was tell them a dollar amount and they would call it in from my office to make sure it was okay and would sign the paperwork and voila, money would appear. Now, this time around, um, I get treated basically like a criminal because I had the temerity to apply for a loan after they contacted me asking me if I wanted to apply for one. And one of the things is uh, I figured out that in their double and triple speak for a business loan, right, they were considering my personal student loan three separate ways, like in triplicates. I figured that out. And at one point uh, in dealing with these endless frustrating people, I found out from my guy, who's a nice guy. I mean, I actually became friends with him, uh, even though we couldn't do business. And he said, well, you know, the underwriters uh, would really like you to explain in detail why you have a student loan. So I told them that uh, I told them that the reason I had a student loan is because 15 years before that I had gone to college and I took out a loan and I recognized the textbooks were expensive. So I used the student loan funds to fund a meth lab to pay for the books. 
And they told me that if I wanted to make threats, that they could make life real interesting for me beyond the loan application. I'm thinking, <laughs> what? I gave you a sarcastic reply to a stupid answer, uh, to a stupid question. And if you can't see that, I'm really not sure I want to do business with you. So, yeah, to your point, the reason I bring that up is I think there are a lot of cases where the money just isn't there, so they'll string you along. Uh, Another thing we discovered in one of our episodes, I wish I could remember which one it was, but there have been over 400 of them. They have a secret criteria that they have for automatically disqualifying you from if you apply for a small business loan. And one of which is, is if you're listing a business address that is in something like a UPS store or something like that. And they maintain a list of all the UPS stores and other types of get a mailbox here and you have a you have a fancy looking address to collect mail in the United States. And if they and they plug it into their little computer and it'll red flag and say, oh, that's a UPS store. Up oh, denied. So they have this thing and it's a little bit of a workaround where if you get some sort of shared working space, even if it's just like a little corner there, and you have something that looks like a desk, looks like a chair, looks like someplace you can plug in a computer, and hanging on the wall in a frame is your business license, that counts as an office and not a mailbox, even if you never go there. Yep. And so just those little gotchas, as they say. So if banks can do it, government sure as heck is going to do it. So with that being said, uh, Leo, let's do a quick follow-up question before we move on to one of many other topics. Um, how do you maximize this PPP or payroll protection program loan forgiveness? Because I know some of our listeners, in fact, got the loans. And this issue that you described earlier is going to come up for them sooner than later. Well, you've got 24 weeks of time after you got the loan to have spent it all. Uh, now money of course is fungible, so it doesn't have to be those dollars. You just have to have spent dollars. Uh, all your payroll counts, uh, other business expenses count. It depends, it can be rent, it can be uh, other things. That's uh, all laid out in the forms. Uh, it was going to be like 90% had to be payroll. Well, now only 60% has to be payroll and it can be 40% of other expenses. So you just need to make sure that you gather up all that data. And if you're short, go look for receipts, go look for things you've forgotten, go look for anything that you spent that meets those categories and that criteria and include it. So here's a question that comes to mind for me. A lot of business creators, small business owners, have one employee and that's themselves, or they have two employees or the other employees their spouse. And it's a way of moving money from the company into the household. Right. So the, so by payroll, that takes the definition of paying invoices submitted by your independent contractors. That should count. Okay. Absolutely. Just wanted to clear that five for our audience because there are big debates, uh, California being one of the states, whether independent contractors should all be W-2 employees, which I'll tell you right now, if they pull that on me, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just find another way around it. Believe me, because uh, I, I make this point with my clients all the time. Uh, they want to send me 1099s and I remind them, no, you're not doing business with me. You're doing business with my entity. Uh, you paid our invoices. You don't owe us any paperwork and I'll take your 1099 and shred it, but send it if it makes you feel good. Yeah. And what you do is you make sure that when you fill out paperwork form, 
you give them the company name. So they send the 1099 to the company. Yeah. Not to you personally. Right. That, that That's one of the big tricks on that. Yeah. But, yeah. And the, I don't know if you've looked recently, but the Department of, of Labor uh, in, in the fall of 2020 has issued uh, new rules, proposed rules for classifying independent contractors. Yeah. And they've got a gotcha in there that is a real critical one if you're not careful. If those p- rules are passed and with the change in administration, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. None of us, none of us do, and uh, and whether somebody is listening to this uh, uh, today when it's live or in three months, we still might not know. Uh, yeah, the, some of this uh, with the change of administration may take two years right. to work out, maybe longer. Uh, so it, you just have to keep on top of it and consult with somebody who knows what's going on, who lives it, who stays up with it who can consult with you and, and, and explain it to you because there's too much of the stuff you, as a businessman, you can't keep up with. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things. I own my own business. Of course, there's things I don't do. I outsource to other people because I don't have time to do it. I don't have time to keep up with it. I'm not, I can't be an expert on everything anymore. Not that I ever was, but I thought I was when I was younger. <laughs> right. So outsource these things. That's why we're in business. We, we're a payroll outsource company. People should, and I, I believe that long before I ever started an outsourcing company, that payroll was something I didn't want to deal with. I didn't want to have to keep up on the changes. I didn't want to have to keep up on the law, the forms, the deposits, the IRS, and the other 15,000 taxing authorities that take tax on payroll, including such things as the Philadelphia School City School District, the city of Indianapolis, New York, of course, Kansas City, Aurora, Colorado, on and on and on, and now minimum wages that are set by cities. Little cities are setting minimum wages, and if your people work in that city, you got to pay them that minimum wage for the period of time they're in that city. They tried to do it here in Dallas. And the state shut them down. But in Dallas, people are all over the place all the time. It would have been a nightmare. And in California, it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what we're seeing with the increasing fragmentation of, and the thing is, you know, we are a federal republic. We're not a, un, a unitary mm-hmm. republic where we have this thing known as the 10th Amendment. And more and more, and this has been a trend over the past four years, states have been asserting their rights under the 10th Amendment, which basically says everything the federal government doesn't say it does, the states do. Absolutely. And especially with this COVID thing, and you have, and all of a sudden, a lot of people have realized that, hey, wait a minute, our governor actually impacts our lives. And why do we vote for this one? Yeah, that's real stuff. Adam, it, you're, you're very true. That is going on and it's becoming more prevalent. Uh, everything that's not delineated in the Constitution is reserved for the states or the people, respectively. And isn't, that, isn't that kind of crazy? We found out that the President of the United States is not the be-all and end-all. Isn't that nuts? Well, I'm, I'm a little older than, than most of your audience. Yeah. I'm a little older than most everybody anymore. Yeah. But that was what I was taught in civics in high school 
back in the, well, well in the last century. <laughs> yeah. They don't teach it anymore. Right. Right, right, right. And uh, and to me, there's just been so much distortion. They think, oh, well, we'll change the president. And that changes everything. So every four years, I've gone around this, and you'll have half the people I know who are just excited beyond belief that so-and-so won. And then you have the other half that are enraged or crying or literally shaking that the other person won. And my advice to both is the same, is curb your enthusiasm don't get too excited there's only so much they can do and what makes it worse is they all of them on both sides say i'm going to do this and they may or may not be able to do it but they sure like to think they can when they are on the campaign trail Oh yeah, I'm the I'm the only person and I'm the only person that can do this. And then you find and I'm not making partisan statements here. I'm just referring back to facts that can be demonstratively proven to be accurate for anybody regardless of persuasion or or bias that uh yeah, oh wait a minute. You have to your party controls the Senate and you actually have to make an alliance with the majority leader because they, in this actual scenario, have more power than you to determine what actually gets done. Oh yeah, he's been there for 50 years. You'll be there for maybe eight. He's seen 10 of you come and go. And to the average American, what that translates into is all the hype you see in the media. And then you hear these things like broken promises unmet expectations the whole nature of the government as in the way it conceived by our founding fathers reading between the lines is it reacts and follows trends it doesn't set them because that's how we have a republic and not a dictatorship yep yeah absolutely and that's what people i think have to understand about regulations is if it seems like the regulations don't make sense it's because the pressure has not yet arrived or the money which creates pressure to change those regulations so if it doesn't seem to make sense or it seems like they should have updated that five years ago in a way that's by design because you want a government that's reactive not proactive because proactive is how you get dictators adam you're you're i have to agree with you 100 on this uh we are a constitutional republic uh we are not a democracy and government reacts based on how we vote and what we do we put in people who think like we try to put in people who think the way we think and they'll change things the way we want to change. If we're not in the majority, we don't get to put people like that in. So that's right. Uh, you know, and uh, again, it's, that's not partisan. That's just life. Yeah. And this segue was important because uh, I wanted our listeners to understand the larger framework within some within which some of this stuff happens. So they can complain about tax breaks for the rich or handouts to the poor or whatever they want to complain about. But it's a system that's much bigger than any individual and it serves interests that most of them could not even begin to comprehend. So with that, let's get back to the incomprehensible, such as an IRS notice. Now what? Well, yeah, the IRS notice. Okay. If you get an IRS notice on your employment taxes, because that's what I specialize in, there's a number of things you can do. And when you bitch at me and say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not equitable, my standard answer, just to move back a minute, is 
call your congressman. Don't, don't bitch at me. I can't fix it. I can't change it. Call your congressman if you think it's inequitable. But if you do get a notice, then the first thing you need to do is respond. You respond to every notice you ever get. Even if you get the same notice two weeks later, respond again and respond in writing. Calling the IRS is a waste of time in most cases yeah. because you'll never get the same person and most of them can't make decisions. So you send, you send the information. If they say you didn't file something, send them a copy of it. Send them no, the proof that you paid it uh, a deposit on time, that you filed it, you sent it certified, or you sent it electronically. Uh, follow up, follow up, follow up. Now, one thing that the IRS will never tell you is you cannot be penalized for a simple mistake. They do it all the time. And they will tell you that's not a simple mistake. That's gross negligence. And we can penalize you for gross negligence. And nowhere in the Internal Revenue Service Code, regulations, procedure manual, is there a definition of gross negligence. So it's up to the agent that you're dealing with. So if the agent you're dealing with insists it's gross negligence, you appeal that. You have multiple levels of appeal. So you take it from the examiner to his boss, from there to the appeals coordinator, from there to appeals, from there to the director of appeals, on up the line. It's a whole series of no's followed by a single yes. And when you get that yes, you look at whoever gave it to you and you say, thank you. You shut up and you turn around and walk away because you got your, your yes. Don't go into a whole big thing about, well, it's about time, yada, 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 because they can change their mind. So yeah, it is, it is a whole series of no's followed by yes. You keep appealing to level, to level, to level, to level. We had one that literally took nine years. And it took me calling the chief of appeals in DC because the person under him wouldn't call me back. And he was the next step. Well, after I talked to the chief of appeals, who I'd met, uh, the guy called me back that afternoon. Uh, we had it all re-examined by somebody new. We started all over from scratch. And six weeks later, the $95,000 penalty was abated in full. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how that is. Now, seven years ago, I relocated uh, the location of my office from one state to another. Uh, my, I've, have, I've had a corporation that's always been registered in Nevada, but I used to live in a different state. So it was parked in that state, even though it was registered in Nevada. So seven years ago, I physically moved to Nevada, which means we withdrew the company from where it had been docked and where it had been paying state unemployment taxes. Uh, I have the, I, I mean, I have the letter uh, that my CPA sent uh, informing them that we were leaving the state and we got the letter back from them confirming they received it. And as of such and such a date, they recognized that we were undocked and we had left the state. So for years, and I mean, three or four years, they would continue to send notices that we were delinquent on unemployment taxes that are paid by small businesses for dates after our withdrawal 
and we kept getting letters and notices from everybody else. So it finally got to the point where I realized that screaming at people and calling them idiots and questioning whether they were actually born or their parents had any children who lived or anything (laughs) like that wasn't really going to solve it. So I just created a PDF of all the documentation that they should have gotten from the other Mm -hmm. department that should have forwarded to the department before that and so on and so forth, where we had already answered the question 20 times about why they, we don't owe them a cent and we're not paying them anything and they need to stop with the notices. Send it enough times and eventually the problem sort of evaporated. Now I had this theory in my mind that that state may have been intentionally sending out notices to people who didn't know taxes just see who they could either trick into paying or intimidating into paying and who knows maybe states do that maybe individual bureaucrats do that uh, uh i i don't put it past them candidly but to your point i discovered that your strategy that you just explained was the wise one so i didn't it's like oh Okay, so we withdrew in 2013, and here where they are trying to collect for our quarter one 2016. Like, didn't they get the 17 memos we've sent to their 17 colleagues? Okay, I call them up. Okay, what's your email address? Hang on. Attach. Send. Got it? Good. Thanks. Bye. Yep, that's perfect. That's a a wonderful way to do it. Put it all together and just keep sending it every time they, they, they hit you up. You know, you're dealing with a bureaucracy. Uh, bureaucracies do not exist to service the general public or the their clients. Right. They exist to exist and increase headcount so the boss gets a bigger paycheck because he has more people working for him. Correct. So yeah. trying to fight a bureaucracy uh, with logic uh, is a waste of time. You fight them with paperwork. You put it all together it's exactly what you did, and you send it to them over and over and over and over and yeah. over because you don't know anything yeah around 2017 it finally stopped now another <laughs> thing that what folks need to bear in mind is you're dealing with human beings and i don't want to say this is a blanket mm-hmm. role for all government employees because i have friends who are government employees who are awesome people but the but the stereotype of the government employee who is more concerned about making sure they got every minute of their 60 minute lunch and both of their 15 minute breaks and did not work one second past 4.30 is and doesn't do anything because they don't make any decisions because that way they don't get in trouble for it is a thing. You also have the situation where uh, you have multiple departments involved in things. This is the layers of bureaucracy. This is the 17 agencies that do one thing. They all have different databases. The databases don't sync. So some of those notices may have come from different databases that did not get the memo that we had withdrawn in 2013 because they were still pulling from 2012 data. You're, you're absolutely they just right. never synced with the master. When I was, when I was talking to the head of nationwide penalties for the IRS at one of the ERSAC meetings. We had an existing problem that's been going on for years. And I explained it to him and he said, no, you're right. They have to do this. They can't penalize you. I said, well, I can use your name. And he said, sure. I haven't had a problem since. But he explained that there's two different modules uh, for this particular thing. And the penalty comes out of this. And the notice about it comes out of this. And they don't they don't talk to each other. So right. the penalties go out, but the notice that would allow you to avoid the penalty never goes out. This is out, but that's the way it's set up. 
Now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree on one little thing. Go ahead. I deal with the IRS all the time, and most of the people, they're nice people. They yeah. have a job to do. Sure. They do it. They, no, they don't work overtime. They're not entrepreneurs. They're government employees. They have families. They have children. They have grandchildren. But if you get them after they've had a call with somebody that was irate and was screaming and yelling at them, they're going to be upset. Their blood pressure's up. They don't really want to listen. They're still trying to calm down from the last one. So whenever I talk to the IRS and I'm talking to uh, an examiner or appeals officer or whatever, uh, you know, I just talk to them like they're somebody new I've met on the, on the plane, you know? And lots of times we end up talking about grandkids and other things. My staff looks at me with, with big eyes and incredulous looks that I'm talking to an IRS agent or an IRS appeals agent like this. But I talk to them like they're normal people that are just doing a job and they're not out to get me. And that works wonders. That's my CPA tells me because he deals with the IRS all the time. And he says he's become friends with some of them. And yeah. and whenever he gets <clears throat> clients, uh, he may have somebody he can call who can just work around it and just stamp whatever needs stamped to get the problem solved. And the way mm -hmm. he described it to me is, these are people that are just trying to make sense of it like everybody else. And they want to do the best job they can and go home to their families. Absolutely. And they're dealing in many cases with their own bureaucracy, yes, their own problems. And in many cases with the IRS, technology, some of which dates back to the 1960s. Yeah. So they're screwed. When I docked my corporation in the other state, when I first formed it in Nevada and docked it in the other state in 2003, uh, there were, I was told there was a 30-day turnaround so they had time to get it microfilmed in 2003. What does that tell you? It, it tells you it, the, there are issues far beyond anybody you're going to deal with on any issue. So I think one of the key points for our listeners is one of the ways you can beat the IRS is to recognize the reality in which we all live and recognize what they deal with. I mean, when I, I used to work for a managed care company. I dealt with contracting uh, with out-of-state, out-of-network providers where our members wandered in and got um, and got involuntarily uh, admitted to psych wards and dealing with disparities between what those facilities wanted to charge and, and what the state Medicaid was willing to pay and everything else. And my actual worst enemy in doing that job was my boss's boss. Aside from the fact that she was oblivious and obtuse, uh, she had very little guidance from the uh, from the contract holders that actually determined all this stuff, and she wasn't willing to really go seek the answers. All she would say is, well, did you negotiate with them? It's like, yeah, and then uh, and a week ago, you told me, you gave me this chart with numbers on it and said that I have to tell them that's the number and that's it, and that's all I can negotiate. Well, how do I negotiate that? I mean, I had to, I had to get written permission to do, uh, to do an out-of-network deal for an individual case uh, where the facility requested that the fees for the psychiatrist be excluded from the facility fee. 
I mean, that, I mean, that's what I was. That's what I was dealing with. So in that case, I had these provider representatives, these provider contractor representatives, demonizing me, and I, you know, I just sometimes uh, I would just I would just sit the phone on my desk because uh, they were speaking or yelling loud enough. I just wait for it to stop because I knew that there was nothing they could say that could make any difference to me. Right, and because yeah. I couldn't do anything about. Because the best part was, I understood their position and wanted to help them. But my battle was with my boss's boss, who, as I said, was obtuse and out of it. I've had that response from the service more than once, is they understand from a particular agent, they understand the situation, they agree with me, but they can't fix it. But their boss may be able to, or their boss's boss, or their boss's boss's boss, yeah. or so on. And so you have to get to the level of authority if you've got a good reason, a good, this is a simple mistake for these reasons. Yeah. The, the first guy on the line, he, his, his job is to say no. Right. It's, his job is not to listen to you or agree with you, though he may. His job is to say no. Someplace up the line, there's somebody with enough authority to say, okay, we'll accept that. And your job as a taxpayer sometimes is to find that person and have put the story together in a way that makes sense, is logical, uh, meets the criteria and allows them to say yes. But it won't be the first guy you talk to. He's required to say no. That, and, that, and that was the position I was in in that job, which was uh, I was I was a guy who uh, basically read from a script and and was getting all this guff from internally, like why didn't you negotiate? When they were the same people saying I had no power to negotiate whatsoever. I mean, uh, I mean the double talk and everything was so amazing. You know what I wanted to say to these providers because I actually knew the answer to their question. Again, I said I understood their situation. I actually thought that they were in the right, and my own employer was in the wrong. Um, what I wanted to say is. Look, here's what you do. <laughs> here's what you do. You have your lawyer call my boss's boss's boss and give them a deadline for when you're going to sue. And by that afternoon, they will fold like a busted lawn chair and just give you whatever you want. And sometimes with the service. Because, because that actually was the secret. You just go three levels up, threaten to sue, and they'll just give you whatever you want. And sometimes if you've gotten the right rapport, with the agent you're dealing with or the officer you're dealing with, they will do that for you. Yeah. They will tell you what to say and who to say it to. Doesn't happen all the time by any means, but if you're nice to them, however, if you yell and scream at them, as many taxpayers do because they think they're being abused and they may be being abused. Yeah. Uh, they won't, they won't, they won't help you. Oh, I was very disinclined to help somebody who was mean to me. But if somebody exactly. was, but if somebody was nice, uh, although unfortunately I was in a cube farm and I couldn't, <laughs> I, and I couldn't, I, I couldn't speak quietly enough to uh, say those words because my immediate supervisor was in the cubicle right next to me, and he had he had hearing like like he could like he could hear an an ant fall, you know, he could hear an ant digging a hole in China. That's how good his hearing was. I couldn't whisper quietly enough to send that message, but there were some <laughs> that I was just dying to tell them that just to get them out of my hair. And I <laughs> felt that way about the nice ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Right. So uh, we have about 20 minutes left here. We're actually about 15 minutes left here. We're having so much fun just getting into the mindset. I mean, I think uh, some of our listeners, and even me to an extent, we're looking for a, a data-driven point by point by point by point by point. But we spent a good 20 minutes of our conversation on the mindset of how you go into this battle, focusing on winning the war rather than fighting skirmishes where the other person only knows that they were told by their commander to shoot at you. Uh, it's like it's like now we're dealing with the mindset of how you get to the commander to get them to agree to a ceasefire or to, to make a treaty with. So what we'd like to do is like to get a little bit specific. I know in your book and in some of your other writings, you mentioned seven steps to force the IRS to abate a penalty. We've alluded to a couple, I believe, so this may be partially a roundup, but let's give our listeners something they can follow. Seven steps to get this done. They get a penalty, they want to abate it. Well, the first thing you do is you look at it and you make sure you understand it. Lots of times you will have gotten the second or third notice and it will now be saying you owe this without an explanation. So get a detailed explanation. If it's not in that paperwork, write them and ask them for it. Tell them you didn't get the previous documents, you don't understand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you fully understand why they are penalizing you, what they're penalizing you for, what the law is behind it. And you can look it up. You, you can put that code section uh, in Google and it'll tell you exactly what's going on, okay? So once you know that, then you respond. If, again, if it's a missing uh, form, you send them a copy of the form. If it's a, they say a deposit's missing, you check it. If you made it, you send them proof you made it. If you send it electronically, you've got a line of data to send them that they'll understand. If it was a check, you've got copies, okay? So yeah. that's, that's the second thing you do is you send them the proof, or if you didn't make it, fine, send it or make the deposit. And if you have a good reason why it wasn't done, that it was a simple mistake, you state that and you ask for an abatement. Then you never give up. If the first response is no, you ask again, okay? And again, and again, and again. At any case, at any time, if you get a notice of determination or a final notice, and you've got to be real careful when you read the notices, because they'll say, we're going to do this, except it's, we intend to do this, okay? When you get to a certain point, and your CPA or your, your payroll people can help you with this, uh, you can then file what's called a CDP, a collection due process, and request a collection due process hearing. You have to have reached a certain point. But when you do that, all collection stops. And they set up a hearing, which may take six months. Okay. And then at the hearing, you present all your data. And these hearings are more qualified people, more experienced people. So a lot of times you can provide them the info and get a good result. If you don't get to that point, you've worked through and you've worked through the, the, the officer, the appeals coordinator, and you're in appeals and you keep talking, okay? One of the things to remember is whatever case you're going to present, you need to present the whole thing the first time and stay consistent. If you start adding things down the line, they've got the paper trail, they've got everything you've sent, 
They've got uh, notes from every conversation you've had. So if you change the story, you lose. You have to be consistent. Now, if you get to appeals and everything gets denied, you can then go file in tax court. U.S. tax court allows you not to pay what's due before the hearing. Right. You can file a petition with the U.S. tax court. The fee is $60. You can do it yourself. You can do it pro se. Uh, if you feel like you're capable of doing it, that's fine. If not, there are lawyers or there are U.S. tax court practitioners, ta-da, like me, who can represent you in tax court without being an attorney and without it charging you attorney's fees. There'll be a fee, but it's going to be cheaper than that tax attorney, I promise you. And you file yeah. that, and 95% of all cases are settled at tax court. 95%. The IRS does not want to go to court. They will settle. Even though they may have you dead to rights, many times they'll offer you a deal for half. Okay? Yeah. And if you screwed up and you're just fighting this hoping and they offer you half, take it and run. Yeah. Okay? Take it, run, and say thank you. Exactly. Yes. Write that check and say, may I have a receipt, please? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, certainly. And, you know, that makes logical sense, which is why which is why in a lot of cases things are bargained or settled or things like that. Mm. Because after a while, the IRS actually loses money fighting this stuff. And they, and, need to be, and they need to be mindful of the taxpayer money that funds them anyway. So go ahead. They should be. But beyond that, if it is a gray area, and a lot of this can be, if they go to court and lose, they lose everyone going forward to anybody who knows what's going on. Okay? So right. if it's a gray area and they're getting a lot of people to pay them in that gray area... They don't want to turn it to black and white because if it turns to white for the taxpayer, the IRS has now just lost all that revenue and all those cases they have out there and all the work they've got into making these things stick and getting paid on goes by the wayside. So they don't want precedent. They don't want court cases that tie them into a certain standard. So they would much rather settle than take the chance of losing a gray case. That is very interesting because what we deal with is a little legal principle known as precedent. Word, word, word gets out they lost on this one case. Everybody has a similar issue. All they need is a really good tax attorney or even just a good CPA who's, who reads the circulars. And, uh, and they're, and they're going to win their cases. I've got one that if it ever goes to a case and I win and I will win, uh, it's going to put a major kink in the IRS. So they never let that one. I filed several petitions on it and they've always agreed not to, uh, just to give it to me because they don't ever want it to go to court. Now, they disagree I should get it, but they go, well, in the interest of, of judicial uh, economy, we're just going to go, okay. 
whatever language they need to declare victory is they give you your results. Uh, you, know, right. you know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like sometimes you get in a physical confrontation with the, with somebody and you manage to stare them down and get them to blank. Yeah. As they walk away, they're going to say, uh, next time I see you, man, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> but the bottom line is you stared them down. They blinked. They're walking away. You got what you wanted, which was to not be in a fight. So let them have their little, gab whatever just go 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 tell everybody tell everybody how you're going to kick my ass as you're walking that way i'm good yeah exactly so that's where tax court can be extremely valuable uh they don't want precedent they're willing to settle it's expensive and time consuming for them to go through all the steps and if you're pro se you do it yourself you get to court they will have an attorney there that they that that's doing pro se work that will take and consult with you free of charge to help you with that. And the judge in a pro se case is basically going to present your case for you in many cases because he knows you don't know the procedure. He knows you don't know the rules. He is not normally going to let the IRS run roughshod over you. Now, if you're a tax protester and you've got one of these off the wall things, well, the flag has fringe or this is unconstitutional, get ready to be flayed alive. Those are the ones they make. Those are the ones they make examples of. Now, I mean, there are different things. You know, there are actually things about the currency of the United States that aren't commonly known. We had somebody else on the Business Creators Radio Show who explained some of that stuff. <laughs> and uh, while some of that stuff may, in fact, be valid, uh, you want to be careful with it and make sure that you're doing it the right way. Like, there's the myth that. The income tax is voluntary. Well, one of the theories, and this was shared by our other guest, is as soon as you pay income tax, you have opted into the system. You cannot opt out. So, become, so declaring yourself tax independent after you've already paid is going to be a loser, and you're the one they're going to drop the hammer on. Well, declaring yourself tax independent before you've ever paid is also a loser. The IRS and the federal courts don't care. You can protest all you want. You can have all these theories. Uh, you can have what you consider to be concrete and absolute proof that this is unconstitutional. The, the courts have ruled over and over and over again it is, and that argument will lose, and they will give you no consideration. They will do maximum penalties. They will do maximum fines, uh, and they will do maximum jail time. Uh, tax protesters, uh, they consider a, a plague upon the world and they will treat you as if you were a rabid dog that needs to be put down and nothing else. So if you want to be a tax protester, I guess there's a decision you have to make. Do you want to be an entrepreneur or a business creator? Um, do you want to be a tax protester? Do you want to uh, be uh, a radical? Do you want to be somebody who makes the system work for them? It's just decisions you have to make for yourself and just understanding that with all those decisions, there are pathways you're going to enter and consequences that may arise. So uh, many people will say, yeah, you know what? 
I want to make this system work for me. I, I know I know it sucks. I know it's busted. I know it's illegal. I know it might be unconstitutional, whatever I feel about it. But in the short term, I just want to make this work for me. Maybe when I have $10 billion, I'll wage a war against it. I'll buy a media outlet and I'll uh, start a movement to have the IRS abolished. We may be able to do that. I don't know. But can, right now, I got to get that $10 billion first. And if, be, that mean, if that means settling cases and getting money back in my pocket, I'll take it. Yeah, you can be George Soros if you're a multi-billionaire and buy DAs and buy all kinds of influence and get a lot of things changed. But if you're not, you can be still be wealthy and be like Wesley Snipes and spend two and a half years in the federal penitentiary. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. And I, I, and I don't know all the details of the Wesley Snipes case. I mean, I'm not sure if it was actually mm -hmm. willful negligence or bad advice or didn't know what he was doing or thought that he could uh, thought that he could play fast and loose with the rules. I don't know. And I've heard different stories about it, but the thing, but the thing is, is his fame did not protect him. His fame and his wealth did not protect him from being Bubba's buddy in, in jail for two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, when you hear stories like that, it's, you know, it's a real shame. And you think about, uh, there may be, I mean, if he had, if he had disagreements with the IRS, there may have been other ways he could have resolved that. There was there many a time. Now my understanding, and I've read the cases is he got bad advice, uh, and from a tax protest, uh, lawyer and so on, but there were numerous occasions. All he had to do was write a check and he refused to do so. And, he went to jail. He went to federal penitentiary for roughly two and a half years because of it. He could have gotten out of it by writing a check. I mean, Willie was stolen from Willie Nelson. Uh, his manager stole from him and didn't pay taxes. And he gave an album to the IRS and all the royalties of that still accrue to the IRS. Yeah. So he, he, he found his way to solve it. Uh, he knew he had a royalty stream. He could just give it to them and uh, that would solve it over time. I mean, that's, that's a way of dealing with it. In the meantime, he's still walking free to make new albums, do concerts, uh, smoke all the weed he wants and everything else he wants in life. So uh, just, just two different. And uh, Willie Nelson is not what you would call a conformist or somebody who just blindly obeys <laughs> the law. It's just not in his philosophy. So if he could find a way to make it work for him, I think a a lot of people even if they protest can do that as well um and protest sometimes the best way to protest is to do it from the inside from a place of power yep absolutely yeah. so get in power and then change the roles all right so we are actually believe it or not at the top of the hour here and i know that uh, there are some specifics we could have gotten into but maybe it's best that we leave that to your conversations with our listeners that may be coming up so you can deal with their individual situations. So real quick, um, you know, how does somebody get a hold of you? What do you have to offer for them? I know you have a book. Uh, tell us just, you know, briefly about that and uh, what they have to expect from you. Well, uh, the payroll book is available on Amazon and other outlets. It's the payroll book, a guide for com. small business and startups. Yep. The uh, payrollbook.com. I'm on the website right now. Exactly. It's available there as well and on Amazon and other places. Yep. Uh, we're Get Payroll. Uh, it's payroll, getpayroll.com. Uh, you can get a hold of us. The phone number is 972-353-0000. And if my staff can't answer the questions, they'll send you to me. Awesome. If, I can't answer, if I can't answer the question, I know somebody that can Exactly. All right. So for our listeners, I'll just say those websites one more time. The book is 
thepayrollbook.com. Real easy to remember. And the business website is actually also pretty simple to remember, www.getpayroll.com. So Charles Reed, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and believe me in education. Adam, my pleasure. All right. So for everybody listening today, I trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Do check out our previous and upcoming episodes, including some of the ones that I alluded to in our conversation at our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh episodes like this one delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.